can have your Bibles handy this morning as we step into our time together in our family series. Uh, today, as we break from Genesis for a few weeks in order to uh, think through this series on the family, um, we do so today particularly as a foundation for what is to come. Uh, as is very typical when we talk about anything in the scriptures, it, uh, it's important for me that I lay a foundation, kind of the, the, the groundwork of what we're going to be building on. And I'm going to do the same thing this morning. I'm going to do so in a bit of a unique way. Uh, as I said, it's been uh, several years since we did a family series. It's 2019, last time we did one. However, it was just about a year ago that I did sort of a marriage mini-series when we were in Genesis chapter 2.24. In Genesis 2.24, we talked about, particularly uh, as it related to marriage, God's design in marriage, and uh, one man, one woman for life, and we, we walked through some of those things with only the last two messages talking about the role of the husband and the wife in the marriage, much less of an interaction series and much more of a design series. That being said, in that series, we did set down everything necessary for the foundation of a healthy marriage, which means, uh, unlike any other family series that I've ever preached, I believe, I'm actually not going to spend time talking about the husband-wife relationship in a dedicated message as I have done in the past. Uh, typically, I've done one or two messages for husband, then one or two messages for wife, and then a message for parents, and then a message for children, and the like. This time, I'm, I'm going to allow that Genesis 2.24 series to be the husband and the wife messages. Uh, that was, again, only a year ago, so you can certainly go back and listen to those if you did not get those or if you'd like a refresher on the things that we said there. However, I am not doing that because the husband and wife relationship is not important. Let me just make that very clear. As a matter of fact, a healthy marriage is, in fact, the backbone of a healthy family. As I say that, we recognize that there are unique situations, single-parent homes, for one reason or another, where by the grace of God, a family is still certainly able to be strong while there is a, for, again, for one reason or another, a, a, a deficiency of the fullness of God's design as it relates to a biblical marriage. But exceptions do not disprove rules. And what we find is that the influence, uh, the masculine influence and the feminine influence, the mother-father influence in a family is God's ideal, is God's design, and does create the best environment for children to be able to grow and to thrive the way that God has designed them to do. I feel very comfortable thus generalizing and saying that the foundation of a healthy and a proper adjusted family is a healthy and properly adjusted marriage. And the reason why is several fold. First, parents, as I uh, focus on you for just a few minutes this morning in your marriage, husband and wife, before we get into the family design and the essence of family design, your marriage, parents, husband, wife, is your children's first and most relatable expression of the character of God. Fathers in particular, you hold the key to your children properly understanding God's loving discipline of his children, God's determined protection of his children, the restoration of fellowship and relationship through chastening and through repentance, and the balance of justice and mercy that God has. These are things which God the Father invests into his children that are best related to us and most immediately related to us as children through the example of the father in the home. I have marveled. I've been going to the uh, Wright County Jail as a chaplain now for uh, about, no, it's been nine years. It was nine years in January. And one of the things that I marvel at is the extent to which I am hindered in my capacity to relate God to the people I'm talking to through that word, Father. Now, for me, it's very natural. For many here, it's very natural that I say God is a loving Father chastens His children. We, we, we read of that in Proverbs chapter 3. We read of that in Hebrews chapter 12. And we say, yes, as a loving Father, God chastens His children. But that's a very, very difficult thing to understand when you haven't had one of those. And 
Uh, no doubt many here also had that struggle over the years. Maybe you're still struggling with the idea of connecting God and appreciating God as your father because of the way, because of the father figure that you had, because of the example that you had in the home, because of the struggles that you have uh, appreciating, respecting, or, or, or otherwise uh, accepting the way that your father treated you. And it made it very hard for you over the years to understand, to relate to, or even to accept the relationship that God desires to have with us as a loving Father, And this is not uncommon among those that did not have very good fathers or absentee fathers in the home. And so one of the, the determinations that we can have for we who understand the scriptures and have the blessings and the benefit of, of aligning ourselves with scripture at the point in our lives where we are still uh, fathers or, or, or as children preparing to be fathers and mothers is that you can determine that you are going to Dispose yourself toward God in such a way and toward your children in such a way that you are going to be an accurate reflection of God's relationship with his children in the way you relate yourself to your children. You can show your children a father who lovingly disciplines, a father who protects and provides, a father who restores fellowship and relationship in the proper way. A father who balances justice and mercy. And then, of course, mothers as well. You also hold a key because God's character is not just the character that we see reflected in the masculine. We see various elements of God's character that are reflected better in women, in in the feminine. God's gentleness and his care for his children, particularly the, the God that we read about in the Psalms oftentimes. God's selfless investment into his children. These are things that are best exemplified in the manner of God's design for the mother in the home. And so we see this idea where father and mother functioning husband and wife relationship in that functioning husband and wife relationship, not just in how you're disposing yourself toward your children, but how you are disposing yourself one toward another is essential to creating an environment where your children can grow up and relate themselves properly to God. Now, does that mean it can't happen without? No, again, exceptions do not disprove rules. Thank God for those who, though they may not have had good fathers and mothers, maybe some other person in the church, some uh, loving mentor has discipled them and taken them under wing. Or maybe even for some of you, you had to wrestle with it yourself. And you had to just sit down with your Bible in your closet and you had to read that Bible and you had to pray and you had to work through it on your own. And thank God, God can do it in all of those ways. But how much easier, how much, how much of, a, of a smoother road it is when parents, you are, by rightly relating yourselves to one another in a, in a proper and functioning marriage, able to disseminate these truths to your children in an organic way that will allow them to relate themselves properly to God through your example. So first... Your marriage is your children's first and most relatable expression of the character of God. Second, your example of obedience to God's design sets the tone for your children's understanding of the same. Your interactions as husband and wife set the tone of obedience and disobedience in your home. If there is a bad, a difficult, a a strained, a broken relationship between mother and father, that is going to set the tone for the relationship between father and son, father and daughter, mother and son, mother and daughter. And again, these things are not, not, not without the capacity to be overcome. But if we are talking about making that road straight and that path direct to allow our children to have a place where they can functionally ask the questions necessary, come to mom and dad when's ne- when necessary, feel the freedom and the liberty to live in a manner that, that whereby they can relate themselves with freedom and, and, and in a proper way to God without the, the cloud that is over them of the relationship between mom and dad and the strain between them and maybe mom and dad tugging child one way or another. All, all of those things that can happen in a marriage, you are going to set the tone, husband and wife. You certainly have the right to tell your children to obey God, even though you and your wife are not exemplifying this in your own marriage. But you're not going to have a whole lot of moral credibility with them to actually invest in what you're saying. And it becomes far more likely that they will not continue in the faith that you taught them because you didn't show them that it was real. You told them it was real, but what they saw was something very different. Third, 
clarity of expectations and consistency of discipline, we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks, are essential to proper child training. And if you're going to have clarity of expectations and consistency of discipline, you know what that means? Husband and wife have to be on the same page. There is no unity in a family if there's no unity in a marriage. Where there is a deficiency of unity in a marriage, there will be deficiency of unity in the family. A unified home is a home where mom and dad have the same expectations toward their children and those expectations are laid out in clarity. And then when there is a problem, there is a unity of discipline among mother and father so that there is not, uh, oh, I can run to dad and get away with what mom won't let me get away with or I can run to mom and get away with what dad won't let me get away with, which creates a disunity and a disharmony that, of course, creates interpersonal relationships in the family. But more than that, once again, because we're talking about design this week, creates a fundamental inconsistency in the mind of a child disposing himself toward how God deals with his children in clarity and consistency. And these are things that we want to avoid. And notice, as I say, stability there. Children thrive in a setting of stability. What I'm actually talking about there is a setting of emotional stability and consistency. It's one of the great mysteries to me that children are able to handle circumstantial instability much better than adults. It is amazing to me how when I've, again, dealing with the criminal justice system and such, the extent to which children can kind of be moved around from place to place and whatnot, and the actual circumstantial uh, um, instability of that, children tend to handle fairly well. What children don't handle very well is emotional inconsistency and instability is when there are volatilities of temper, uncertainty of emotional care. This is when children become most unhappy. Adults feel the lack of things much stronger than children do. As long as children know that they are loved, they have very little trouble believing, even if things are rough, they have very little trouble believing that they'll be cared for as long as they know they're loved. But as soon as there's an instability emotionally... A volatility emotionally. That's when children are extremely sensitive. And so while we in America have done a very good job as a general rule of providing circumstantial stability to our children, even in a very circumstantially stable home, where this, what I mean by that is the circumstances of life are such that the children will come downstairs and they'll open the fridge and there will be food in it. And the children will know that they can get where they need to go and they'll have clothes on their backs and whatnot. Even in a circumstantially stable home, husband and wife, if you are emotionally volatile with each other, you are creating an emotionally unstable environment for your children that can create real unhappiness in them and can cause them tremendous struggles. So that if a husband and wife are not properly related to each other, children feel that very deeply and it can undermine much of their ability to thrive in their formative years. So this is why, as we found the design of the family, we are truly starting with that baseline of the marriage. And again, I encourage you, seek unto that healthy marriage if you want to have a healthy family. Maybe go back and listen to those two messages I preached last year from Genesis 2.24 on it. I've preached other messages over the years on it. Or if you're struggling, come see me. And we'll start walking through it together and and, and pinpoint the things that, that can be done to bring about a healthy marriage so that you can have the foundation necessary. You say, well, pastor, it's a little bit too late for uh, the, the children. What about the grandchildren? Can they see, see stability through you? What about you helping other young couples who do have children? Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's, maybe it's some other young couple. Can you uh, br- bring about in them, help them, mentor them into emotional stability so that there can be a, a proper orientation as they orient themselves to one another for their children in the home? And so with that foundation being laid, I want to lay one more foundation for you this morning, and that's the foundation we've talked about before, the foundation of 
how God has designed and structured a functional society. Within the design of God, we generally see three primary institutions that he has created. And again, I talked about this a year ago when we were talking about God instituting marriage. And then a little bit later, uh, after the flood, we see God instituting the concept of civil government. And I talked about that in the fall. Within the design of God, we see three primary institutions, civil government, family, and church. And each of these institutions is delegated a certain role within our society. And we talk first about the the role of civil government. That is established as best we can tell. We we credit that to Genesis chapter 8 when Noah and his sons come off of the ark and God institutes this idea, this, this command, that if any man shed the blood of a man by him... By, by, by man, his blood, excuse me, should be shed. And the idea there is that man is going to create a self-regulating body where he identifies and recognizes God's moral law and design, and then he is empowered to enforce that moral law and that design in society. And we call that civil government, so that we recognize from what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 13, we recognize from what, what, what we find in First Peter as it relates to honoring the king, that God has established civil government and the authority of civil government within a society unto a particular end. To that end, Romans 13 says that civil government, the ministers of government, are ministers of God, the Bible says. And because they are ministers of God, they, are, they have the right to our submission and our honor. However, they also have an accountability before God, which is why all throughout the Proverbs, we see these exhortations that say that the king that is going to rightly relate himself to his role is a king who first and foremost fears God. Because a leader will not rule properly if he does not rule in the fear of God. It is, in fact, why our society is where it is today. Because our leaders do not fear God. They have no fear of God before their eyes. And because they have no fear of God before their eyes, they do what is right in their own eyes and the people mourn. So we see this idea of civil government. The natural authority of civil government to protect and to preserve life and liberty, even to the extent of taking a life, detaining persons, restricting natural rights as a just consequence of infractions against society as they recognize their role of creating a properly adjusted society. This is a right which individuals and and other institutions do not have naturally. The government has the right to take lives for crimes in society. The church does not have that right. The family does not have that right. And individuals do not have that right. When the church or the family take upon themselves that role of protecting and preserving life and liberty, of avenging evil, we overextend our authority, and this creates an imbalance in society that has various consequences upon its people. And as we study history, we can see examples in history of all sorts of, uh, of government, church, societal uh, um, balanced systems, and you can see how in any, any sort of imbalance, it brings about natural consequences within that society. And of course, that same goes as we, we talk about the church. God has given the church authority to protect and to proclaim truth in society and to edify and lead the saints. Jesus speaks in Matthew 18 of the authority to rebuke and to remove transgressors from fellowship. We often talk about that passage as the church discipline passage, right? Where you go to a brother who has, who, uh, if, if there be, be ought against a brother, you go to him and then you go to him with two or three people and then you bring him before the assembly and if he will not listen, then you treat him as a publican and as a sinner. And we talk about that as it relates to church discipline. We see that there is authority within the church, James 5 speaks of the authority of the elders to intercede spiritually on behalf of those in the church. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's from James 5. We see in 1 Peter chapter 5 calls for the church to place themselves willingly under the authority of the elders of the church as it relates to the spiritual function that he is called to accomplish. And so we recognize that there is authority in the church, but that authority is not over Society, that authority is over believers, right? Those who have bound themselves one to another in mutual accountability according to God's exhortation upon them. Now, when government or family 
takes upon themselves that authority, which is delegated to the church, establishing and enforcing truth, claiming spiritual authority over the believer. This is an overextension of authority, and it creates an imbalance in society, which will have consequences upon its people. And then finally, we talk about our purpose for, for this foundation, which is the family. That God has given family the right to raise, to discipline, to train the next generation. The right of the authority of parents over their own children. The right of the man to have authority over his wife, right? Over his own wife, as the scriptures say. Uh, love your wife, and then wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband, right? The right of a man to lead his home. And from this institution comes the nature of business as well. If we were trying to fit, okay, pastor, where does business fit into this? You have civil government and you have church and you have family. But what about like business? What about commerce? Well, that would actually, we'd, we'd fit that more under the idea of family, the concept that from the family comes industry and from the industry comes the, the, the businesses of society. So that's where that would fit in there if you were looking for a place to fit it in. And so these responsibilities are given to the family as the foundational unit, the foundational unit of a functioning society. And when government or church takes upon itself the role of authority in these areas of life, raising, disciplining, training the next generation, dictating the function of the home, that government or that church overextends its authority and this creates an imbalance in society, which will have consequences upon its people. In fact, our church is somewhat of a response to an imbalance that we believe we began to see. Actually, I wouldn't even say began to see. We believe has happened in the church over the course of the last 50 to 60 years, where as the sexual revolution happened and there was an alienation of the younger generation from the older generation and a breakdown of multi-generationalism in this country, which happened late 50s, 60s, and into the 70s, that the church said we are going to accommodate this breakdown by creating a, a church where every single age group is separated internally from the other age groups in the church. And in doing so, it first off fostered, it, it accommodated the rebellion of that age, saying, well, you don't like your parents' church, but we still want you to come to church, so we'll create a church that's outside of your parents' church. It continued to foster the alienation of father from son rather than the reconciliation of father and son. And it led to a completely age-segregated society where now there's such a dramatic generation gap between every generation of society that they don't even understand each other and there's certainly no, no respect. And that's where we're going with this. We're going to come to this idea of multi-generational discipleship this morning because the essence of the family, the foundation of what we're talking about is not just talking about it as it relates to the nucleus of the family, but the, 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 the principle of multi-generational discipleship, which has been lost. Now, as I say those things about the church, that is not to say that there are not churches who have age-segregated ministries who have not been able to overcome those deficiencies, bridge those gaps, and make it work. I'm not preaching against that model. That's not our model. But we're not here to say that that model is wicked or bad or evil or anything of the sort. It's a choice. It's a decision. But we have come out of that model because we believe the deficiencies of that, that model are, are greater than its benefits. And so we've chosen a different model whereby we keep the families together and foster and encourage multi-generational discipleship so much so that to be quite honest, parents, in our model, if you are not actively discipling your children, they're probably not going to get much else. It is on you. I'm not taking on that responsibility and the church is not taking it on either, which means you can't just come and hope that your kids are going to figure it out. You have to be the engager. And, that, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later too. That's the point. If you're, if, if you're in this model... You're saying, I'm taking responsibility because no one else is going to do it for you in this model. And so we have this idea where we believe that each, each 
individual institution in the society has a functional role to play. And as it sticks in its lane and it functions according to the role that it has been given in society, then society moves harmoniously along. But as one takes from the other, as government takes from parents the right to, to, to teach their children, as church takes from parents the right to teach their children, as uh, um, family takes from government the right to avenge evil, as church takes from government the right to avenge evil, as government takes from church the religious sensibilities of the people, as family takes from church the religious, the religious authority, all of these things bring about an imbalance that is unhealthy to a society and is outside of God's design. And so we, we see these things, and, and let me give you a few examples here as, as it relates to the overlap, say, let's start with government and family. Our government has identified their fundamental inability, and, 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 and what I'm showing here is that there is some overlap. As I, as I give this system, you say, well, pastor, that sounds pretty absolutist. Yep, it does sound pretty absolutist. But you notice that we have a bit of a Venn diagram thing happening here. And within that, there is overlap. Government, our government at least, in the United States of America, from the beginning recognized and identified a fundamental inability to protect every citizen institutionally. And also recognized the danger that the institution might become a danger to the citizen. And so they built into this country first, the Second Amendment, whereby the citizens can, uh, can defend themselves against a tyrannical government, but also in many states we have laws giving private citizens the right to defend themselves within reason to mete out some measure of justice upon an evildoer who would seek to harm them. Now, the government is not actually abdicating their role here. We'd say that they're delegating their role so that we have the right, in, in lieu of the fact that institutionally the government is not able to functionally meet all of its obligations to protect all of its citizens. The country is very big. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of needs. And so individuals have the right to defend themselves as an extension of the government's duty to protect its citizens. We also find that governments throughout the past couple hundred of years have created laws and infrastructure to create, to facilitate the proper education and protection of children. Originally, when we think about what public schools were supposed to be, they were effectively supposed to be schools where parents delegated their role to a subset of teachers in the community specifically for the point of efficiency in that community, making sure that there are people that are well-trained enough to be able to do the job properly making sure that if there's a child that could not have access to good education otherwise, that, th that society would take on a bit of the burden of taking the responsibility off of parents, parents delegating that responsibility to a system that was subsidized by the government. But of course, as we have seen in both cases, the government delegating some of its uh, responsibilities to uh, individual citizens or in families delegating some of their responsibility to the government, within that place of overlap, there's a tremendous opportunity for overreach. So that now, our government schools do not see themselves as responsible to the parents. They see the parents as in their way. And that's a problem. In the same way that if we started um, autonomous zones so that we could enforce our own justice as citizens, that would be an overreach of the government being willing to delegate to us some responsibility to defend ourselves. And so we see that there can be overreach both ways. The same can be said about the church and state. This is the one that we might all be most familiar with as it relates to um, history, because this is where the United States actually came from, right? Historically in the Western world, the church and state were inseparable creating an imbalance where the church was able to use the power of the state to enforce its dogmas, and the state was able to influence, use the influence and the religious sensibilities of the church to enforce fealty to the state, to where if you did not do what the church demanded of you, you were a traitor against the government, 
And if you did not do what the government told you, then you'd be cast out of the church. And this became an imbalance in society. Our founders sought to remedy the situation with the First Amendment, not intending to prohibit the influence of the church upon government and society in any way, but only prohibiting the ability of the church and the state to leverage each other's institutional powers to enforce the will of the other. And as we've discussed, the natural overreach to God's design brings with it many negative consequences upon society. That being said, it is certainly within that overlap of government and church to see the government encourage a thriving church and the church to encourage influence on government. Laws that protect the church's freedom to speak. We even see in our country historical laws that give tax benefits to the church as a means by which to encourage churches to be able to function free from the regular obligations and duties of a business so that churches don't necessarily fall into a business model. Now, thanks to Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, the church has fallen into a business model, in part. But... That wasn't the initial design, right? The initial design was to unburden the churches with the idea that we have to pay all of these taxes and things just to keep running because we're supposed to be people that are giving our money away to other people, right? And every, every cent that we're giving to, to the government to pay for all of this property and whatever else is money that, that, that our society, that our, our individual society is losing for the needs of the people. That was the initial intent. And in the same way, the church is supposed to have a role in government, advocating for righteous leaders, compelling submission to said leaders, advising leaders in moral decisions, being the conscience of society. The church is the one that should be leading the way as it relates to the moral degradation of society. The church should be the one at the tip of the spear speaking against such things. Of course, again, it's become imbalanced and and, and we've lost that in our society, but that's the design. That, That was the design. In this overlap zone, each institution, however, must be very careful. Because as we've seen, the overlap for churches has been that churches have become these mega businesses with no tax liabilities because they're living in this gray gray area where they, they are effectively becoming humongous businesses with no tax liabilities. And then on the other end, naturally... The government has been successful since the 1960s of completely pushing the church out of the sphere of the moral conscience so that the church has been afraid to speak up and to speak against the negative things that are happening in society out of fear. And in doing so, society has no conscience left to speak up against these things. Finally, let's look at the overlap between the church and the family. This is the one that's nearest and dearest to the heart of legacy. The church and the family both play a natural role in education, in upbringing, even as a a role in what we would call commerce in society. Within the church, we are called to educate the saints. Titus chapter 2 talks about multi-generational leadership, where the elders in the church teach the younger how to orient themselves properly to life. That the elder men teach the young men how to be Bold, how to be well-spoken, how to have answers for the questions that are within them, how to uh, calm their, their, their zeal and have a measure of discretion. The elder women are supposed to teach the young women how to love their husbands, how to guide the home, how to take care of their children, how to orient themselves properly to, to, to their role in, in society and in the family. And so the church is a place where we are called to learn, and we are called unto multi-generational discipleship, setting the foundation for healthy marriages and healthy families. Likewise, the truth which is protected and proclaimed by the church ought to carry into the family that what the church is supposed to do is we are supposed to proclaim that truth to you so that you go out with your husband, with your wife, with your children, with your grandchildren, with, with... just with yourself. You go out and you proclaim that truth, win people to Christ, and bring them into the church. So that the church becomes ground zero for you to learn what is necessary and to be emboldened and to remember that you're not alone so that then you can go out and you can stand in a lost and dying world and reach that world for Christ. So that there has always been a partnership between church and family in this regard. 
But again, these th in, in this area of overlap, there is the most danger of overreach and care must be taken, as we've talked about already. So that's this design, this, if you want to say, some people have said the three-legged stool of society, whereby you have these institutions, you have the roles of these institutions, and you have the danger of overreach in any of these institutions toward one another that can lead to imbalances in society. Now, the last thing I want to do in our time together today is I want to emphasize this mindset. And again, all we're doing this week is laying a bunch of foundations. Next week, I'm going to start talking to you parents in a more direct way. We have laid a foundation for why parents, if you want to be the best parents possible, if you want to orient your children rightly to God as best as possible, make sure that your marriage is right. Start with your marriage. A healthy marriage will bring about healthy family. Don't neglect your marriage for the sake of your children. That's the worst thing that you can do. That's foundation number one. Foundation number two, we want to make sure that you as, as in your family role, that you are rightly oriented to the other elements of society and see the role that is yours to play. You don't need to overextend your role. Focus on your role. And then it's up to you to decide where in those areas of overlap between government and family, between church and family, where we fit into that. Our church has chosen a path on that. It's not for everyone, but, but our, the path that we have chosen, this non-age segregated model, is intended to foster a proper balance between church and family in society. Finally, though, I want to really encourage you on this idea of multi-generational discipleship. This is, this is where we, we reform the way we think about our interactions one with another. And much of this is implicit in the early pages of the Bible. But it is very clear in the foundational passage. It's really oftentimes considered the foundational passage for the very essence of, of, of our movement, the non-age segregated movement, even in, in a lot of cases, the, the Christian homeschool movement. And that's Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9, the Bible says this, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. This passage is the beginning of our answer to the question of God's design in family. Family is the place where parents are called to diligently pass down to their children their values. Where your values are passed down to your children. And, I, and, and, and you all know in our society, there are any number of people and institutions that are very eager to pass down to impressionable children their values. But this is your job, parents. This is your responsibility, parents. And this is your privilege, parents. And what that means is that as you are deciding what happens with your children, as you are deciding what media your children get to consume, what, 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 what access they have to the world outside of, of, of your family, which as they get older, they're going to have, and that's natural and right and good. But what you need to decide is where are the places where there is a competition for the hearts of your children as it relates to your values, and those are the areas that you need to be watching, that you need to be guarding. And the reason why is because that is your responsibility. That is your venue. That is your place. That is, that is, that is the delegation God has given to you in your home. You pass down your values to your children. And so we take the values that we have, we pass them down as we sit in our homes, as we walk by the way, when they lie down, when they rise up. This gives us an idea of what the family is supposed to look like functionally. Your values are not just for Sunday, parents. You don't come to Sunday. We already talked a little bit about the idea of hip hypocrisy in the home. If your children come on Sunday and they learn values that they do not have to exercise the rest of the week, well, there's one of two things wrong. Either you're in the wrong church or your family is not living out proper values. And this is going to create a disconnect in the minds of our children. 
Whereas the design of family is supposed to be that the values that we are learning, we take with us everywhere we go. That when we go to the store, we live by our values in the way we shop. That as we go to the park, we live by our values in the way we play. That as we go out to the, to, to the garage to, to fix the car, or as we go to chop the wood, or as we go to, to work on the house, or as we go to bake, or as we go to do the laundry, or whatever it is, we are doing that thing as an extension of our values. So that our values are the hub of the wheel in our home. And of course, I say the word values, which is, is somewhat uh, um, broad term, but we would work that down to 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. And this is the privilege that, and the responsibility that we have in the family. Everything becomes an extension of our values. And if we cannot do what we are thinking of doing or go where we're thinking of going or say what we're thinking of saying or watch what we're thinking of watching as an extension of our values, then we don't do it. If there is someone who is competing for the hearts of my children with different values, my children don't listen to that person because they are seeking to steal from me my right which is to inculcate these values into my children. That's what God has given me by right when he gave me those children. And that forms the foundation of what family is designed to do. A multi-generational institution for transmitting values from elder to younger. We find a warning of Paul regarding the character of the last days in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says this, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. There's a comma there. I'm going to leave the comma where it is and not move on from there because my point has been made. Within this list of things that uh, Paul describes as a part of the character of perilous times where men are lovers of their own selves and covetous and all of these things that we would see as truly egregious, we see this interesting statement, disobedient to parents. A part of the inherent wickedness of the last days is a fundamental disregard for the authority of parents. But notice that this is connected to a spirit. And the spirit that it's connected to is a spirit of pride, selfishness, narcissism. That is the spirit of our age, Christian. As we consider the manifestations of this spirit of self-love throughout history, it's not just connected to a rejection of parental authority, though. It's actually connected to a much broader idea. The, the rejection of parental authority is a subset of a, of a broader rejection of inherited generational wisdom. Why is it that you see monuments being torn down all around this country? Why is it that you see the history books being changed? The reason why is because there is a push to reject generational wisdom, inherited wisdom. There is a push. We live in a time when a younger generation, the younger generation, the generation that's coming up now, they stand upon the shoulders of giants but have convinced themselves that they're flying. May I put it that way? They never look down to see that they're actually standing on shoulders. They say, we have done this ourselves. It's a generation that is utterly disregarding the lessons and the legacy of the men who have gone before them in a fit of self-righteous zeal. Convinced that theirs is the enlightened generation and that all who have gone before them are little more than those who have been stuck in backwards Neanderthal thinking and unworthy of consideration or respect. And listen, the generations that have gone before did do some things that are absolutely unworthy of respect. Every generation does. Yet, nonetheless, we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. And the things which have precipitated this in society, of course, is a breakdown of the biblical family. As the biblical family has broken down, 
so too has this spirit of disregard for inherited wisdom grown. As society says, the family is not important. As society says, you do not need multi-generational discipleship. As the family says, we need to let our children lead the way into the future. We have seen this disregard for inherited wisdom grow. But far beyond the simple command for children to obey their parents, for parents to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, we'll look at that over the course of the weeks, the pervasive call throughout, especially the wisdom literature in our Bibles, for children to honor the experience, the wisdom of those who have gone before them is everywhere. As I said, this theme is pervasive. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. A wise man will hear and will increase in learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. To understand a proverb in the interpretation of words of the wise and the dark sayings, My son, hear the instruction of thy father. Forsake not the law of thy mother, for they shall be an ornament of grace to thy head and chains about thy neck. Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear to wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest after her as uh, after knowledge, excuse me, and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest for her or seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasure, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Proverbs 3 verses 1 and 2. My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Proverbs 4, 1 through 7. Hear, ye children, the instruction of a father, and attend to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. Proverbs 4, 1 through 7. He, uh, excuse me. Proverbs 4, this should be 4 through 7. He taught me also and said unto me, Let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all I getting, get understanding. Proverbs 7, 1 through 5. My son, keep my words. And lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live, and my law is the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers, write them upon the table of thy heart. Say unto wisdom, Thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. Notice the symbiotic relationship of multi generational discipleship here, where the older generation is willing to put the time and the effort into thoughtful exhortation in the ways of wisdom, gleaned through years of experience, through trial and error, through steadiness of mind and spirit that comes only with time. And the younger generation is willing to accept in humility the limitations that are natural to their youth and inexperience. And so submit to the wisdom of the generations who have come before them, not to the undoing of their youthful zeal, but as the guardrails of their thoughts and their intentions, as they drive, really, society and the future forward. And we find in this mutual service, one to another, the foundation of a society which is stable, purposed, directed, and healthy. And while Titus 2 we've already referenced, assures us that this multi-generational legacy is one of the areas where the church most certainly shares a role with the family. Deuteronomy 6 and these exhortations of Proverbs most naturally place the importance of this multi-generational investment in fathers and grandfathers toward their children and their grandchildren, and that by design. Every generation of young people, due to their zeal and optimism, struggle with submission to the wisdom of those who have gone before. This is not unnatural. We, we know this to be true. We fully expect this. It's uh, charted in poems, in song, and in story that young people have a hard time appreciating the generations that have gone before. Every generation of young people lives 
to be a generation of older people who will change through time and experience, but in that time of youth, they feel that way. Now, the old idiom says that experience is the best teacher, and one of the ways that the the elders in any society have comforted themselves is they look at the younger generation, they say, well, they'll wise up eventually, they'll figure it out when life kind of smacks them in the face, and that is very true, but while life is an experience is the best teacher, it is also not a gentle teacher, is it? Wisdom from experience carries the scars of mistakes. And if those mistakes are big enough, then wisdom from experience comes with regrets and sorrows as well. And this is the reason why we have the book of Proverbs. As a tool to give you a shortcut to those lessons. That if we listen to the wisdom of those who have gone before then the younger generation can live in that wisdom and so avoid the mistakes of the generations that have gone before them. Correct the mistakes that that generation made. So that there have been times in our past where society has lived up to the kind of model that says every generation should, in theory, be better than the generation that came before it. But there's a requirement to every generation being better than the generation before it. And that is that the generation upcoming listens to the generation that came before them on their mistakes, on the things they did wrong, on the things they tried, that it's going to take 10, 20, 30 years to realize have failed. And then to listen to them and say, it failed in your generation, don't repeat it. It failed in my generation, don't repeat that in your generation. But here's the thing about biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is generalized. It's not customized. Biblical wisdom gives large, grand sayings about the nature of life. Even this last phrase here. To keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. That's a wonderful thing. That the wisdom of the father helps the son avoid the dangers of the kind of woman who is called here the strange woman. Uh, Oftentimes I'll categorize her in Proverbs as the willing woman. But you're not going to find in Proverbs chapter 6 or 7 or 8 a warning against the internet and pornography. It's kind of a new thing. And that's where we need multi-generational discipleship. That's where we need the generation that, that, is, that, that has lived through this transition to look at the younger generation and say, that's where the strange woman lives today. There was a day where don't go by her corner means avoid a certain part of town. Now don't go by her corner means put filters on your internet. It's the same principle, but we need multi-generational discipleship to guard our children Because my child, if I put my child on the internet without guardrails, he's going to find that corner. I guarantee you he's going to find that corner. I'm not speculating. I'm not not over-exaggerating. He will find that corner. He needs me to be a protection for him. To help inculcate that wisdom into him. That's my job. That is not the the job of the FCC. Be really nice if they put some limitations on internet pornography, but that's not their job for my son. That's my job for my son. It is not the job of the church. We're, we, uh, we, we've taught a little bit before. I intend to do a Tuesday series on how to filter the internet. I'm very good at the, at, at the tech side of things. I can help people with that. That's something that I intend to do. I've helped some individuals in the church do it too. That's good for the church to be a part of, but that's not pastor's job. It's father's job. And yes, we all need help and all of those things, but that is your role. And then to the extent that we merge church and family for multi-generational discipleship, that's our role. This is where elders come in. Parents, pastors, mentors, people who care about you more than you can understand, children. And God has given these men and these women to guide our feet into this timeless wisdom. Don't despise it. Now, not every person under the sound of my voice has had wise and godly parents. Not everyone under the sound of my voice has two parents 
We understand that. Again, that's where church comes in. But to, to those of you that have parents who love the Lord, you have the best source possible to help you convert the general wisdom of the Word of God into the tailor-made instructions to help you as an individual and your parents. For those of you that are lacking that in one way or another, you have a church of men who love you, who are willing to invest in you, church of women who love you, who are willing to invest in you to help you gain that multi-generational investment to connect the dots of what the Word of God says to, what the, word, to, to what you, the way you need to live. To be able to take shortcuts around the dangers and the mistakes of life so that you don't have to go through them and live with their regrets and their scars. And that's the goal of functioning families. That you can be built up without the effects of those scars and those mistakes. And you can learn from wisdom what you would otherwise have to learn by experience. And God forbid that, that we would, as parents, be negligent. Now, children are not always going to listen. We know that. They have free wills. We know that. We can only do so much. We know that. But God forbid we would be negligent as parents, grandparents, as a church in instilling generational wisdom into our children, in connecting with our children. God forbid that we would, that, that we would have a church that, that would have alienated children from the elders, from the, the older people in the church, instead of uniting them together, multi-generational discipleship, multi-generational interaction by which we can learn from one another and our young people can take the lessons and the wisdom of the older people in the church and carry it with them into their lives to avoid the snares of the devil. That's the principle here. And this has always been God's design. Young people, you have in this church, parents if you've got them, grandparents if you've got them here, the church as a whole if you don't, you have the best source possible to help you convert the general wisdom of God's word into tailor-made instructions. See through the flaws of those past generations, get past our rough edges because we've got them, and to the degree that they point you toward wisdom, regard that instruction with priority. This has always been God's design. And for our children who don't have parents, as I've said, I'll have more to say about your relationship to your, or, or, or who have bad parents, parents who are not believers, whatever it might be. I'll have more to say about those things in the weeks to come. But the best thing you can do for yourself with your parents' blessing Place yourself under the regular discipleship of those who will point you unto wisdom. Find a, find a discipler. They're around. There are people who want nothing better than to be able to pour what they have learned into others. And there's no lack of that in the Christian church. And in this we find that every man, every woman, every child, whether you've got children of your own, whether you have grandchildren, whether you have children, whether you don't have children, whether you, you've, you've got family in the church, whether you don't, every man, woman, and child has a place in the church in this system. Ideally through the family, then intermingling with the church, and then for those that don't have that family influence, the church makes up the difference. This is the design. A purpose that connects all of us. And this purpose connects us both to the past and to the future. That as, our, as, as one generation of our church comes into the, 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 the latter years of their life, as their, as their ambition and their, their role in society sunsets, and if that's you here today, you say, well, my, my role is sunsetting. I'm, 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 I'm on my way out. Well, yes, but you still have such a vital role to play. And not only do you have a vital role to play in taking all that you've learned and pouring it into the younger generations, but at the same time, as you pour into that younger generation, your fingerprints will be all over the future so that you have a place, not just in the past, but you have a place in the future. And you have a place in connecting the two. There's no better way to serve the church 
than to chart its future. We talked about that recently on Tuesday nights with uh, the role of women in the church. We went to 1 Peter 2 on that. Parents and grandparents, there's no better way to serve the church than to raise your children to love the Lord and to secure the next generation of what we're doing here. The same can be said for siblings investing in each other. We'll talk about that too. So as we step into this mini-series, let us all do so with a determination in mind. That as we have identified God's design, multi-generational discipleship to pass virtue and wisdom from elder to younger, rooted primarily in fathers to children or mothers, parents to children, grandparents to children, then church to young people through the Titus 2 example of elders passing down wisdom to younger this multi-generational discipleship, so too we are going to, through that, align with God's plan. And as we align with God's plan, it's one of the amazing things about what happens when an institution or a family or an individual aligns with what God is doing, that is the place where you have God's grace. So that we're not going to do it perfectly. Legacy Baptist Church has not perfectly, flawlessly been trying to reimagine how to orient people to, to each other in the church in order to bring about proper multi-generational discipleship. We haven't done that perfectly yet. But that's where we can rely upon the fact that if God is in it and if we're seeking to align with his design, his grace also overshadows it to make up the difference for us. And parents, it's the same for you in your home. If you seek unto a proper relationship between husband and wife, if you seek unto clarity and consistency in raising your children, if you seek unto proper principles of inculcating values into the next generation, and you say, yeah, but I know I'm not doing it right. Maybe I'm figuring it out for the first time. Maybe I didn't have parents that could give me this example. Uh, Maybe I don't know exactly where to go, and I need teachers, and I need helpers, and I need these things. You need those things. That's why the church is here. That's what we're here to do. But to the extent that you aren't able to do it properly because you're so very human, as you seek unto what is right in honesty, without hypocrisy, in virtue, in humility, God reserves the right to pour his grace on you to make up the difference for you. And he will. He's promised to. And thank God for that because we all need it. And so this comes upon all of us, whether you're here as a parent or a grandparent or you're just here. We all have a role to play in this. This series will not be just about, we're going to talk about parents and children and whatnot, but there's, there's something here for everybody. Every week there will be. And the reason why is not just because pastor is really clever at taking a, a, an idea and blowing it up. to to apply to everyone, it's because there is a role here to play in the church for everybody. But know this as well, and you know this, parents. This role, whether for parent or child, whether for discipler or disciplee, it's going to come with sacrifice for all involved. Setting aside ourselves so that we can grow together. The elders as investors the younger as receivers. Both of those roles take humility. Both of those roles take patience. And the only reason why we dedicate ourselves to it is because we know it's God's design that through strong families, we do our part to restore a strong society. And so we can begin to see how important this, to- this topic is to societal stability, connecting the past to the present, connecting our generations to the character of God. This is why we need to guard our families. This is why we must prioritize our families. This is why we must have a mindset. Because if we're going to win anything back in society, it's going to begin by securing our children and our grandchildren. And as we talk about this, for those of you who are fathers and mothers... For those of you who are going to be fathers and mothers, for those of us who are elders in our our society, in our church, in in our fellowship, the responsibility rests on us. 
Again, that doesn't mean that the younger generation will receive what we have to offer, but let it not be because we did not offer it. Let it not be because we are the negligent ones. But rather, we carry into our lives, into our, uh, our structure, a determined, multi-generational mindset. And we lay it out there for our children. And what they do with it, that's going to be up to them. But let's be sure that we're laying it out there for them. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for God's people, and I ask that you would help us to be a people who are rightly related to your design. Uh, None of us is perfect. None of us has figured it out. And uh, speaking as a parent myself, it's an extremely vulnerable place to be. And not only do our parents know that, but you know that. But I ask that we would, as we walk through these weeks, carry this mindset, this multi-generational mindset, determined to take the values of the Word of God and to lay them out in a manner that our children can relate themselves to, determined to reflect the nature of God the Father into the lives of the generation that is coming up, determined to help them see a, a connection between the wisdom of the past and the future that you have charted for them, Help us to carry this mindset and to carry this burden with us with all gravity and with all clarity. And grant us um, that as you reveal things to our hearts that we would do our part as best we can. Leaving the rest to you joyfully. And Father, I do pray for the generation that is up and coming. And I ask that as we seek to do our part and as they do their part, that they would receive with gladness the wisdom that we have to offer that they would see our flaws and our mistakes and that they would be able to correct them in their generation. And that they would see our victories and those things that have carried forward with virtue and with clarity and that they would continue to carry that banner forward. That they would not throw the baby out with the bathwater. That they would not reject everything because they must reject some things. I pray that our young people would not carry forward with them the spirit of rebellion that we find is a hallmark of this generation of young people but rather we could see a reconciliation of fathers to children, a reconciliation within the church of multi-generational discipleship unto this end that we might have a healthy body of Christ that is effective for the kingdom of God. And may you be pleased with how we work these things into our lives over the course of these weeks. I commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.